Baptist Theological Seminary at Richmond has been preparing women and men for all areas of ministry for over 25 years. From justice and peace building to religious liberty, BTSR offers a meaningful and relevant education experience for a changing world. Students at BTSR come from all walks of life and every stage of life. BTSR offers flexible class times and online options while providing the high quality of education that BTSR has known for over two decades. Visit BTSR to learn more. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversation. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship and interviews with those doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, practitioners, and authors from around the globe. This is Andy Hale. Our guest for this week's podcast is Brian Zahn, pastor in the heartland and author. In the coming months, we will feature the work of Alexia Salvatierra, pastor, advocate, and founder of Faith Rooted Organizing Unnetwork, Trip Fuller, the host of the 70,000-member-strong Homebrewing Christianity podcast, and a podcast centered on the theology of vocation, featuring story photographers, one of the most profound incarnational approaches to ministry. But before we jump into our conversation, we'll make you aware of an opportunity coming up in 2018. CBF's Church Works will be held in San Antonio, Texas at Trinity Baptist Church, February 26th through the 28th. ChurchWorks creates space for renewal and ministry through partnership of creativity, community, and worship. To teach the people of God, educators need to place to be equipped, to be inspired, and to be renewed. ChurchWorks is a three-day event for all practitioners of education and spiritual formation and congregational settings. Now on to our conversation with Brian Zahn. Well, our guest for this week's podcast is Brian Zahn. He's the pastor and founder of Word of Life Church, a non-denominational Christian congregation in St. Joseph's, Missouri. Uh, He's been at this church-starting thing since 1981 when Word of Life Church was founded. And for those that aren't familiar with the heartland geography, St. Joseph's is located near the Kansas and Missouri border. I believe it's about 53 miles from Falls City, Nebraska, Nebraska. Okay, I, I have to be honest. I had to look that up on Google because I wasn't sure. I'm not well, very familiar. We are 50 miles north of Kansas City. That's how you find us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Brian has authored several books, including Watered Wine, uh, Farewell to Mars, uh, Beauty Will Save the World. And he's got an upcoming book, which we'll talk about a little later on, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Uh, he describes himself as a full-time pastor, occasional author, and a would-be mountaineer. Uh, Brian, this is an honor. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Andy. It's great to be with you. Well, uh, certainly before we get started, I need to give a special thank you to Jeff Langford, CBF Heartland Coordinator, for setting this up. I think Jeff and your brother are good friends, and he passed along a word to you, and you said, yeah, I'd love to do a podcast. So this is a special thanks to Jeff, and and thank you again for joining us. Well, uh, for many uh, who aren't a part of the Heartland, uh, they might not be familiar with you. Uh, So tell us a little bit more about yourself. You know, uh, my roots, I grew up in a, in a Baptist home, but my real encounter with Christ occurred when I was a teenager and I was part of the Jesus movement. I mean, I had a good, I had a good upbringing, so I had a church upbringing, but somehow it just hadn't clicked. And I had a very dramatic conversion experience when I was a sophomore in high school, where overnight I went from being the high school Led Zeppelin freak to being the high school Jesus freak. And it was, it shocked everybody, including myself. 
Uh, back in those days, everybody called me Fry. That was my nickname. And people would, you know, after a few weeks had gone by, they would say, Fry, I can't believe what's happened to you. And I'd say, man, I can't believe it either. But it happened. And uh, I was leading Bible studies and all sorts of stuff. Ended up uh, founding this church when I was 22. I don't know about 22-year-olds founding churches. I'm not recommending it. I'm not saying <laughs> it's the idea. And yet it's what happened. And so, um, but I'd been doing the work of a pastor since I was about 17. I mean, really, I was doing that. So I can tell people that I have been a pastor longer than I've been an adult. And that is true. And again, I don't recommend it, but that's what happened. Um, I've, I've been with this one church. It's been my life's work. I think, as you mentioned in the introduction, I've been there now 35 years. And uh, we've been through a lot of changes, as one, I think, should, over a 35-year journey. Um, so we started off in the Jesus movement. That sort of fed us into maybe the charismatic renewal, which I would say was good until it wasn't. And then that put us more into some religious right things and other things. And I just... By the time I was 45, and I'm 58 now, so people can not have to do the math in their head to figure out how old I am. Uh, about 13 years ago, I just, it, Andy, it's as if I just woke up and thought, how did I get here? It's like I got on the wrong bus or something. This is, this is not really what I'm, what I'm about. And I had a kind of crisis of faith, not regarding Jesus. I was as fascinated with Jesus as I'd ever been, as I have been since I first encountered him. Um, but I felt like the Christianity I knew and was experiencing, and quite frankly was helping to replicate, uh, was unworthy of the Christ that had so fascinated me so many years ago. So that really put me on a quest to find a richer, deeper, more substantive Christianity. That's the story I tell in my I think it's a memoir. It's pretty close to being a memoir anyway, uh, Water to Wine. And I tell that story of moving my church away from American pop Christianity into something more rooted in the great tradition, also moving away from just lockstep allegiance with the religious right and really trying to embody a politics that reflects the Sermon on the Mount. As one might imagine, such moves were not necessarily warmly greeted by my congregation. <laughs> I ended up losing about a thousand people. And we, you know, we had a pretty big church, so we had a thousand to lose anyway. But I mean, still, uh, we lost, you know, you know, we lost at least a third of our church, maybe more. And uh, it was painful. It was very painful. Uh, St. Joseph is a town of 70,000. And if you lose a thousand members, what does that mean? It means if you go to the grocery store, you see them. <laughs> and, and if you do it just right, you see them in aisles one through 10 every single time. <laughs> and so that was the experience we went through, let's say, 10, 9, 8, 7 years ago, something like that. We were going through that. It was painful, but we've made it through. I love where our church is today. I've never been more both passionate and content in pastoring than I am right now. And so I feel like we've arrived at a place that is healthy, that uh, I feel very good about, but it was, it, was a, it was a hard journey to get there. So that's a, 
I just I just gave you 35 years or more like 40 years right there. So that's that's my life story in one five minute version. <laughs> well, it's powerful. I mean, I would certainly say, um, you know, for people starting churches to start one at 22 and to be at this um, and have been successful, um, not in the metrics of numbers, but um, in the type of ministry that y'all are doing, um, that's that's something that's unheard of. Yeah, when you say, you know, when today people launch churches with all kinds of preparation and they've thought about it and they've planned it for months, if not years, and that isn't at all our story. I mean, I ended up with a church that I didn't know I was starting <laughs> because what happened was, is I, I, I eventually, by the time I was 17, 18, I was leading what was called, what we called back then a coffee house ministry. It was essentially a Christian music venue where we would occasionally have some teachers, but it was mostly music, you know, from the Jesus movement era. And it it just sort of turned into a church. And I just sort of fell into being a pastor. So it was never planned. You couldn't have planned it like that. And you wouldn't have given it much chance of success. And yet somehow, somehow it did survive. And then it thrived. And then it needed to change and it got pruned back. But now I think we're, I mean, it may sound self-serving or self-congratulatory to say it, but I feel like we're bearing the best fruit that we ever have right now. And, um, but the whole journey has been, um, it's been very, I don't know what's the word, maybe organic. I don't know. I, it was never really, if, if you ask us what our five-year plan is, we don't have one. I think all that's good. I admire people that can do that, but it's just never been really our story. We we just sort of stumbled into this and we've been stumbling along for 35 years and here we are. Well, you know, certainly it's <laughs> it's one of those things that I think uh, if we have too much figured out when we start a church, maybe we need to rethink what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and certainly a lesson for, for many people who are starting churches with CBF that, uh, you know, hearing from you who's, had all these years of experience to say, you don't have to have it all together before you step into the calling that God's placed on your life. Um, so that's, that's excellent. You, you alluded to this earlier and something I'd, I'd like for us to, to talk a little bit about. Um, and that's kind of the association with um, America and Christianity. Um, uh, one thing is certain about this current political climate in America um, that the maybe once quieted voices of racism and xenophobia mm. and sexism have been given a platform and prominence. And the sad reality is that many that gather in these tribes subscribe to the Christian faith. Um, your work, uh, a, farewell, a Farewell to Mars, um, an evangelical's pastor to journey towards the biblical gospel of peace, uh, it speaks to the normalization of American patriotism and violence with the Christian yeah. faith and um this is, and I'm not just saying this because we're talking, this is a brilliant book, um, and it invites readers to shift their way of thinking, uh, to repent, as Jesus calls us to, um, from the militant, grotesque God presented in, uh, say, Western American Christianity to this transformationally peaceful God seen in Jesus of Nazareth. Um, for our readers, uh, listen to this expert from chapter, excerpt from chapter four. It says, the cross is shock therapy for a world addicted to solving its problems through violence. The cross shocks us into a devastating realization that our faith system of violence murdered God. 
you talked about this a little bit earlier, about you know, 13 years ago, having a shift. What was going on in your life that led to this dramatic theological shift? What was going on in my life is that everything, uh, according to the metrics that we would evaluate American ministry, was successful. I had a big church, no problems that I knew of anyway. Uh, we had lots of money, had a certain amount of influence. And I began, though, to feel disquieted in my soul, like something was wrong. And that's when I began. I didn't really even know what to do. Uh, so I, I, started, I started at the beginning. That is, I began to read the patristics, the church fathers, and I began to immerse my mind in how the earliest Christian theologians talked about the revelation of God in Christ. At the same time, I was returning to some earlier loves that had fallen off along the way, and that included philosophy and um, good classic literature. So I was reading classic literature, liter literature philosophy, and um, church fathers. And this was uh, alerting me to aspects of the gospel that were very much buried under a deep red, white, and blue veneer in American evangelicalism. But then I had a mystical experience, and this may, I don't know, maybe this will scare our listeners here, but I had a mystical experience around the year 2004. And I was in prayer one day, I was learning to pray better. That's, that was part of this journey, learning how to, as I describe it, sit with Jesus, which is a form of contemplative prayer, basically acknowledging the presence of Christ and just sitting quietly in that presence. And I was reminded of an episode from much earlier, from I guess it was 1991. Is that the year of the first Gulf War? Mm. Um, and it was like a, it was like, well, what I remembered, I hadn't thought about this. I hadn't thought about this now in years. And I remembered the day I was, a, you know, pastor of the church, very busy. And we knew that America was about to go to war in Iraq. And I was quite excited about it. And this is before the Internet, really. And so I just had a radio on in my study. And I was, you know, paying attention to the news. And finally, about 5 o'clock, I went home. Uh, we invited some friends over to our house. We ordered pizza and we watched a war live on television as a form of entertainment. Um, this, you know, this was the first time war was really broadcast live on television. Uh, this is what made CNN famous. This is what made the career of Wolf Blitzer. People remember that. And I, I simply didn't think about it after that. I ate a pizza. I watched a war on television. America won. I was fine with it. Everything was good. And I hadn't thought about it until 2004 when I was sitting in prayer. And this whole episode was played back in my mind like an incriminating surveillance video. And I felt Jesus say to me, that was your worst sin. And it crushed me. And I wept bitterly. And I repented. And that led me to profoundly rethinking the relationship of a follower of Christ with war and the means of violence. And 
I eventually wrote this book of farewell to Mars. You know, I thought that I, I knew I was going to write a book like this for some time. And I kept telling my wife, I said, I'll write it when I'm in my seventies and I don't have much to lose. <laughs> but then what happened is my grandchildren came along. Uh, I now have five grandchildren and a sixth on the way, but at, at uh, that time, I only had three. And so I, I have this book's here right at my hand. So I'm picking it up, Farewell Noirs. And it's dedicated for Jude, Mercy, and Finn. And because of my grandchildren, I felt like I really needed to express what I thought uh, about the incompatibility of waging war and following Jesus. Um, this is highly controversial, I suppose, although the book has been very well received. And the only real serious pushback I've got tends to be from people who haven't actually read it. <laughs> people that read it, even if they don't agree with all my conclusions, tend to think that it's well thought out and respectful. And uh, I've had numerous um, career military uh, men read this and reach out to me and I'll tell, I'll tell a, a quite remarkable story. This is, I'm not saying that I expect everyone who reads the book to have the same kind of effect, but um, there was a CIA officer in Afghanistan, and he was conducting uh, some sort of operation where he was directing drone strikes on suspected targets. And somehow, I don't know exactly the story, although I've met him twice, he... Um, he somehow got a copy of A Farewell to Mars and was reading it while he was also in Afghanistan directing these drone strike operations and finally came to the conviction that this was incompatible with following the one who taught us to love our enemies. And he went to his uh, commanding officer and resigned. And uh, today he's a FBI agent working in the white collar crime uh, division in Boston. But he, he made a trip all the way out here just to tell me that. So I don't know what to say. Uh, I went through a profound rethinking about violence and how we understand that and how it affects and, and, and how, how Christ should regard how we view it. Uh, let, let me say this. When, when people ask me, are you a pacifist? I don't like the label. I don't like labels for several reasons. One reason is uh, Soren Kierkegaard was right when he said, when you label me, you negate me. And it's very easy. Oh, he's one of those and just dismiss them. But the fact is, I really don't claim to be a pacifist because pacifism is an ethical position that one can hold uh, pertaining to violence apart from Christ. And that's not who I am. And that's not what I've done. Rather, I'm simply a Christian. If you must label me, then I'll take that label. I'm a Christian. And now let's have the conversation about how Christ informs us on the subject of both nationalism and war waging. So um, that's, that's where the book comes from. That's what it deals with. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty proud of the book. I, I think I communicated well what I was trying to say in that book. And... Uh, yeah. If, if someone is surprised that I've written a book like this, well, if you'd known me 20 years ago, uh, you should be surprised. I'm surprised that I wrote that. But I'm thankful that I was able to write a book like that. And I think it's increasingly relevant. I think it was when, – when was this published? I can hear the copyright. I think I know, but I don't. 
Uh, it was published in 2014. seems like it was longer ago than that. But um, it seems very relevant right now, as I am seeing within America a stronger and stronger turn toward nationalism and a nationalism that is supported by a kind of civil religion that is really uh, – it's not Christianity. It's, it's, it's an American form of civil religion that borrows heavily from the language, vocabulary, iconography, and ideas of Christianity, but is really committed to the nation first. And of course, America, is, this is nothing new. This has been the great problem the church has had for the last 17 centuries, ever since Constantine, is the tendency for the church to become a chaplain to empire. And you see, you see with Rome, with Byzantium, with Russia, with Spain, with all of the European powers, and now you see America following, at least the American church, following in the same mistake. And I think it's something serious. I think we need to really be careful. Um, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll stop there and let you direct us in another direction if you want to, Andy. No, I mean, it's exactly where I wanted to nestle. It's, um, you know, this book, although, you know, as you said, came out three years ago, is very timely. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to put a time stamp on, okay, you had this um, kind of enlightening moment in 2004. That's right in the heart of the second Iraqi war and the Afghanistan conflict. Not exactly the more popular time to begin to speak uh, about, um, you know, in a different perspective of the gospel. Um, maybe a different perspective is not the best way to describe it, because I would argue it is the perspective of... Um, Jesus of Nazareth seen in the gospel. But, you know, one particular uh, impactful portion of the book that sticks out to me is this uh, juxtaposed images of the United States Air Force Academy uh, Cadet Chapel, a chapel yeah. that was made in the shape of fighter planes. And uh, this beautiful mural um, in Denver Airport, um, mural uh, in peace and harmony with nature. And these contrasting images help define the dividing line between the violence supported by American Christianity and the peaceful kingdom called forth by Jesus. Um, I tell you, there's a, there's a book that I don't know if you've heard this before. There's a book that really goes hand in hand with your book, but your book takes it to a completely different uh, and higher level of deeper spirituality and a pastoral tone. Um, are you familiar with uh, Reza Aslan's book, uh, A Zealot, A Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth? I'm familiar with it. I know about it. I have not read it, though. Yeah, so uh, Aslan's book has been highly criticized by evangelicals, but one thing he, he does is he raises um, the injustice of making Jesus the clean, neat, and harmless poster child of Christianity um, by revealing the political and cultural and religious context of Jesus' message and actions. Yeah. And in short, what he calls for is he, he, he wants to argue that Jesus was executed as an insurrectionist. And, um, you know, as I was reading your book, uh, you, you do take this, uh, this concept to a deeper um, and more uh, pastoral tone of, of talking about that we need to understand and see Jesus um, not in the light of this, you know, clean and um, political free um, type Messiah, but one that charged at the very religious and political systems of his day. Well, it's what's wrong with nearly every Jesus movie I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. You cannot figure out why this guy ends up executed. <laughs> you know, here's a guy who's going around, he's healing some people, he's preaching some nice little sermons, and all of a sudden it takes a weird turn and he ends up nailed to a tree. Uh, that's because we've sanitized, sen sentimentalized his message. Jesus, in his public ministry, did two things for three years. 
he announced and enacted the kingdom of God. But even when I describe it that way, it can sound, um, well, the kingdom of God. See, the problem is kingdom is an archaic term for us. We don't use that term, really. What, what Jesus means by the kingdom of God is the government of God, the reign of God, the rule of God, the politics of God. Kingdom of heaven, which is Matthew's version of the same phrase, simply means that a government, not from this world, but from heaven, that is from God, is breaking into the world through what Jesus is announcing and enacting. When Jesus stands before Pilate, the charge is treason, that he claims to be a king. Well, I mean, at this time, the Roman Empire runs the world. And kings are all clients of the Roman Empire. Herod is the king of the Jews because he's a client king for the Roman Empire. And Pilate is not interested in charges of blasphemy. That's a theological matter that he cares nothing about. But he is interested in the charge that Jesus might perhaps claim to be a king. And so that's exactly what Pilate moves toward. And he says, well, are you a king? And Jesus says, it's as you say, but my kingdom is not from this world. It's for this world, but it doesn't come from the system of the Pharaohs and the Caesars that Pilate was participant in. Jesus goes on and says, for this purpose, I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. And of course, that is juxtapositioned against some lie. The lie is that the world has to be organized around an axis of power enforced by violence, that, the, that violence is the only legitimate way for shaping history. And Jesus says he's come to bear witness to something other that he calls truth. And then Pilate famously says, what is truth? And there's a break in their conversation. Jesus is taken away. He's examined by scourging, this brutal Roman practice. And then he's returned to Pilate Pilate continues his interrogation, but now Jesus has become silent, and he doesn't answer, and Pilate's frustrated. And Pilate says, don't you understand that I have power to kill you and power to release you? Well, that is the moment when Pilate answers his own question. What is truth? For Pilate, this is the truth, that the world is run by those that have the power to kill. Jesus comes and brings an alternative arrangement of human society that he calls the kingdom or the government or the politics of God. And it is arranged in a completely different way. This is how the church always understood the kingdom of God for the first 300 years until you arrive at the moment, which was deeply confusing, when you had a so-called Christian emperor, Constantine. Remember, Constantine is involved in a civil war. He's not the emperor. He's a general. And he, he is on the eve of a decisive battle, and he claims to have seen a vision of a cross in the sky with the words, in this sign you shall conquer. Of course, conquer is a euphemism for kill. And so he places Christian iconography as a fetish for war upon the shields of his soldiers. They go forth into this decisive battle. They are victorious, and he begins to show favored status to Christianity. It's not completely accurate to say he was a Christian emperor because Constantine seems to have understood that you really could not rule as an emperor in a violence-based empire 
and be Christian at the same time, which is why he delayed his baptism, which was not the practice of the day, until his deathbed. Uh, so now we have a Christian emperor, but this is a problem for the church because when the church said Jesus is Lord, the seminal Christian confession, that is not a religious statement nearly as much as it is a political statement. I mean, you have to understand that the phrases Lord, Son of God, King of Kings, Prince of Peace, Savior of the world were all imperial titles conferred by the Roman Senate upon the various Caesars, and it was on the coins, which was the means of mass circulation in the empire, so that when Christians began to say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King of Kings, Prince of Peace, Savior of the world, this was a very subversive move that had political implications. During those first 300 years, the Roman Empire didn't persecute Christians for religious reasons. The Roman Empire was largely religiously tolerant. They persecuted the Christians because they saw that their message had a political component that they were unwilling to compromise with. And that's why Christians end up uh, in periods of persecution. But now that you have a Christian emperor, an emperor and supposedly a Christian empire, it creates a problem. And the problem is, well, what do you do with Jesus? You can't just get rid of him. And this is when Jesus is demoted from being actually the Lord to the Secretary of Afterlife Affairs. And the emphasis becomes private and post-mortem, a privatized spirituality that mostly affects what happens when we die. And so that is what happened a very long time ago. And you have this whole sordid history of Christian empires, uh, or I should say the church acting as a chaplain to empires. And I, maybe I should define empire because I'm using that phrase as if people know what I mean by that. Empires are rich, powerful nations that believe they have a manifest destiny to shape history in a divine right to rule other nations. In Scripture, we find that God loves nations. That is, the various ethnicities and cultures and gatherings of human people. God loves nations, but when they claim to be, when they claim a divine right and a manifest destiny to shape history and rule other nations, they claim for themselves what God has promised to his son, and that's when it becomes a problem. And we have a long history in the West of the church acting as a chaplain to empire through the form of civil religion. And uh, it led to the catastrophe, catastrophe, catastrophe of the two world wars in Europe, where in the name of state, in the name of nation, in the name of patriotism, millions upon millions of baptized Christians killed one another. So people will say to me, yeah, but what were we supposed to do about Hitler? I say, look, you drug me into the conversation in the middle of the problem. Mm -hmm. The first question to ask is how in the world was Hitler able to wage his blitzkrieg with baptized soldiers? What had gone so wrong with the church that in the name of patriotism and nationalism that baptized German Christian soldiers would follow those orders that came from Hitler? So I, that's the kind of stuff I deal with, I suppose, in A Farewell to Mars, although I, I can never verbally communicate it with the precision I do when I write. So that's why I write books. <laughs> well, you know, I think, I think one of the things I appreciate the most um, as a church historian is that you gave historical context, uh, not only for uh, first century Palestine, but some of these key movements along the way in the church's history. Um, so I'll make the argument for you and make your publisher happy. This book 
is a necessary catalyst for change during this rise of nationalism and social acceptance of racism, xenophobia, and sexism. But, but, but I wonder if we could uh, maybe take this down to, uh, to the micro level in the local church. You know, many of our listeners are uh, pastors um, of all different forms all across the United States. Um, and, and they might be thinking, you know, I'm right on board <laughs> With, with Brian um, on where he uh, interprets scripture and how he uh, feels the implications of the gospel uh, message should be carried out um, as the forming of the kingdom of God yet to come and still present with us. Um, so I, I wonder if we could talk about uh, how this work has inspired you in the way that you pastor day to day. Um, how do you bring people along in the process of of stepping out of their known theological perspectives and into an alternative way of seeing the gospel? Yeah, uh, and one of the things I want to stress, and I think most people will get this that are listening to us today, um, I pastor in St. Joseph, Missouri. This is a conservative, blue-collar town. Uh, Not tons of college-educated people, and certainly very conservative. If I can do this here, it can be done about anywhere. Uh, so, but it takes patience. Don't underestimate your congregation. Uh, don't try to speak over their head. You don't do that. But give them some credit that if they are loved and if you're patient and if you rely heavily upon Jesus, and by that I mean, among other things, to center a lot of your preaching in the four Gospels. You know, the Gospels are the Gospel. I mean, what is the Gospel? The Gospel is the story of Jesus. We try to turn it into some formula, four laws or three steps, or, but that's not the Gospel. The Gospel is the story of Jesus. And let Jesus, if you'll let Jesus do the work, let Jesus speak for himself through preaching, um, you know, you're not going to bring everyone along But my experience has been that if you're patient, if you're kind, if you're humble, if you continually point to Jesus, that because most are genuinely attracted to Christ, to to the figure, Jesus of Nazareth, that they will come along with you. They will come on this journey. I did a six month series through the Sermon on the Mount. And Sunday after Sunday, I would have people come up to me afterwards and they would say, Pastor, are you saying? And they would have their question. I would say, I'm really trying very hard to say very little. What do you think Jesus is saying here? And if they can hear Jesus, not Brian, not the pastor, but if they can hear Jesus presenting an alternative vision for the arrangement of human society, which is a which the shorthand term is politics. If they can hear Jesus' politics and they understand it comes from Jesus, it's amazing how many of them really will be willing to rethink everything, which is what repent means, right? Reponse, to, to rethink. And, but you have to be patient. Don't try to do it in one sermon. Don't try to do it in one sermon series. Don't try to do it too fast. I mean, in a lot of ways, I've made these changes in my church over, the period, over a period of a decade. Uh, and of course, other people, yeah, but you lost a thousand people. We did. We, lost, we had a big church, and I think we lost a lot of people that just like the idea of American pop Christianity. And so be it. I mean, that's, that's the way that goes. Um, but we have a strong, healthy, 
growing, vibrant congregation today. And it's not a, you know, it's not like a, what I want to say, it's, our church looks like people from St. Joseph, Missouri. I mean, our church is a pretty accurate cross-section of just what you would find here in this town, but they are learning the ways of a disciple. And that's the most rewarding thing of all. You know, I think I would add to what you said because you've already stated, which is modeling the way. Um, it takes great conviction um, and earnesty of a pastor to um, have such a dramatic shift and to be open about that shift. Yeah, you know? one of the things I need to say is um, I hear from pastors just about every day. They'll contact me one way or the other. They've read one of my books or something like that. And they'll often say, you know, it took a lot of courage for you to do what you did. And I say, yeah, yeah. I know what they're trying to say there. In some ways I was afraid when I was doing it, but um, you can't unknow what you know and be true to yourself. But the thing is, Andy, and this is important. I had the authority to make those kind of changes in my church. Now I, I, I had to be willing to risk it. I had to be willing to risk misunderstanding and rejection and loss, all of which I experienced, but at least I could make those decisions. Not every pastor is in a position where he can actually even make those kind of decisions. And so I'm respectful of that. Some have to just try to tell it really slant, uh, be pretty, you know, circumspect and even subversive in how they try to sow kingdom seeds in a culture that is highly nationalistic, sometimes you just have to really go slow. And I, I understand. Hmm. Well, what you're talking about seems so authentic. I mean, if we recall our gospels and John six, Jesus has this massive group of people following him. And that's when he introduces the idea of, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of yeah. my blood, you can have no part of me. And, you know, John reports that many left him that day and never, never returned. Um, you know, so it, it's not easy to live out your theological convictions. It's certainly not easy to, um, to take people through a process of discipleship. Uh, but I think uh, the sense of honesty and openness you've had is some, there's a lot of integrity there that a lot of ministers can learn from. from so thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. I used to get invited to speak at lots of church growth seminars. I don't get invited, to, <laughs> but I do, I, do, I do get invited to a lot of, Jesus conferences. And so, you know, I'm, I'm happy about that. <laughs> um, well, before we go, um, I, I got a word in from um, the old revivalist preacher, Jonathan Edwards. He has a few things to say about your, <laughs> uh, your, your recent book um, uh, from his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. They deserve to be cast into hell. So the divine justice never stands in the way. It makes no objection against God using his power at any moment to destroy them. You have a book that came out in August entitled Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Tell us more about the book. Well, let's first of all, um, I was a huge fan, if you want to use that word, of Jonathan Edwards. And as a young preacher, you know, I was fascinated by all of the revivalists, Edwards and Wesley, Whitfield, Finney, all of these. And I was fascinated with the Great Awakening and 
And I knew that this famous sermon centers in the hands of an angry God had something to do with that. So I, I, I had a larger collected works of Edwards, and I took out that one uh, section and I turned it into a little booklet. I tell people this was back in the days when cut and paste was done with scissors and glue. I mean, I prepared my own little booklet and I had a cover I put on. I still have it, by the way. And I, I wrote on there with a big, heavy black magic marker, centers in the hands of an, and then in all caps, angry God. And I memorized parts of it. And I would, I put it in my preaching arsenal. And my rationale was, uh, it was sort of a good cop, bad cop routine. You present a very terrifying, angry, retributive, violent God, that's the bad cop, and then offer them Jesus as the way to escape that. In other words, you end up with a gospel wherein Jesus saves us from God. And I preached that way, and I preached that kind of gospel for many years until I really began to rethink some things and began to learn how to pray and went on a journey. And I arrived at the place where I could no longer think that way about the God that Jesus called Abba, the Father. And so in Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, even though I'm not really trying to pick a fight with Jonathan Edwards, I, but I am telling part of my own story and the, and the turn that occurred in my own life. And in the foreword to the book, which you, you probably haven't seen that, but in the foreword to the book, uh, there's a Paul Young who wrote the shack writes the forward and he he shows some things about the journey that even Jonathan Edwards went on and he began to speak very differently later in his ministry but in this book I'm asking the question is God in fact angry violent and retributive I know there are ways to use the Bible to paint that kind of portrait of God if you are so inclined but still is it true and so I'm being highly respectful. It's a, it, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God is an intensely biblical book. I mean, I don't know if there's a single page where I'm not dealing with something from Scripture. But we're um, facing it honestly, but asking, well, what about Old Testament violence? Does God command and condone genocide? What about the fear of God? The Bible speaks about it. What about the wrath of God? The Bible talks about that. So we just ignore that. What about the cross? Isn't that where God employs violence toward redemption? Is that how we should understand the cross? What about hell? And what about the book of Revelation? Doesn't it give us a vision of Jesus returning on a flying white horse and killing 200 million people? And so I'm looking at, the, I'm not avoiding those. I'm not skirting the issue. I'm not uh, pretending those passages aren't in the Bible. But still, I am persisting in asking this question, is God, in fact, angry, violent, and retributive? And I would say the conclusion, I mean, I want people to read the book, but in the end, I feel like I can make this statement. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus because he's immutable. He doesn't change. There's never been a time, therefore, when God was not like Jesus. The thing is, we haven't always known that, but now we do. And so I'm very happy with this book, and I hope people will want to read it, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Hmm. Well, I think you're safe. I don't think Jonathan Edwards is going to, you know, start a, a Twitter battle with you. Um, <laughs> though I can see, you know, why you love him so much. I'm it sitting here looking at it. <laughs> I'm looking at a picture of Jonathan Edwards, you know, painting of Jonathan Edwards and that glorious powdered mane he yeah. had. Um, 
maybe that's something to go with, even though you're rocking the, uh, the Bob Dylan look <laughs> for sure. Uh, well, Brian, we look forward to, uh, to reading this book. Um, and thank you so much for your time uh, with us today. Thank you, Andy. Be sure to follow Brian on Twitter at Brian Zahn. You can find more information, including sermons and blog posts at brianzahn.com and visit Amazon to pick up his latest book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. We absolutely cannot end this podcast before we tell you about Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's reference and referral ministry that's managed by Craig Janey. If you feel led to a new church or you're looking to serve your first church, CBF reference and referral can help. From discernment to search and call, CBF can equip you to maximize your search with practical resources through the process. Among these resources is Leader Connect, our high-tech matching database that connects CBF ministries to CBF churches. Fill out your online profile and upload your resume today at cbf.net backslash leaderconnect. That's leaderconnect, one word, leaderconnect. A special thank you to Baptist Theological Seminary of Richmond and CBF Reference and Referral for sponsoring today's episode. Be sure to visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, along with blogs that tell the story of our field personnel, our advocacy, and our church charters from around the fellowship. As you go, may the compassion of Jesus be with you, the strength of the Spirit dwell within you, and the mercy of God empower you.